Grace and peace of our Lord and Savior be with you. This is the Sermons from the Cornfield podcast, a weekly podcast for the sermons that are preached from the three Methodist churches in Camden County, North Carolina, where I serve, are uploaded for you to listen to and hopefully to enjoy. My name is Pastor Mark O'Neill, and our sermon today that you're about to listen to uh, comes from or is a continuation of a series we're doing at our churches based upon renewing our covenant with God or recommitting our lives to the Lordship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, based uh, in large part on the book. One Faithful Promise by McGray R. DeVega uh, that we were given by our district superintendent to read and that has had an impact on my life. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and enjoy this sermon. God bless. We continue in our series this morning on renewing our covenant with God. We've been talking the last couple of weeks about wanting to have a robust active faith, one that acknowledges the need to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to guard against becoming comfortable and lazy in our walk with God. Last week, the first step was to confide in God. We talked about the need for us to carve out time to come to God vulnerably and authentically, to focus inwardly and come to the realization of how we sin, where we sin, and how powerless we are to do anything about it except for the strength and support of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the need for us to come face-to-face with our shortcomings, and then using that as a base to move forward, turning towards God and allowing Him to guide our path. It is an uncomfortable step, maybe one we would rather not have to go through, but it is essential. And I trust that you spent the last week thinking about ways that you can confide in God. Step two, which we will talk about this morning, is to compose your spirit. If you thought step one was hard and maybe you were hoping for something a little bit easier, a little bit less intense for step two, unfortunately, there is no letting up. If you thought that the diagnosis of your sins in step one was tough, well, that's because it was. But that's just the starting point. The prescription isn't easy and the recovery isn't smooth and we all need to focus. That's what this step is all about. Staying focused and serious about committing yourself to God. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised that confiding in God and confessing our sins is then followed by composing our spirit. I mean, if we confirm or affirm who God is in our relationship and we know that we are not God, then what we're left with is this question of, well, who are we? What is our identity? And we oftentimes answer that question with attempts at feeding our own egos. We inflate our standing, estimating ourselves to be better than we actually are. We tell ourselves, well, you know, I realize that I'm not God, I'm not perfect, but I'm still pretty good compared to that guy or that guy or that guy. For John Wesley, this kind of comparison was a slippery slope towards disaster. He writes that the sinner will never be received by Christ until the sinner lets go all other props and trusts on him alone. Christ will have no sharer with him in the work of saving souls. If you seek him, let those props go their way. As Christ said in another case, let not only your sins go, but your righteousness go. All the refuges of lies wherein you've trusted. Let it all go if you will have me be a refuge to you. The Apostle Paul makes the same appeal in the book of Romans when he tells us, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Instead, be reasonable since God has measured out a portion of faith to each of you. We have to be realistic in estimating ourselves. And we have to understand that no matter what your mama or your grandma told you, you are not 
the center of the universe. In 2007, I decided to run for the city council in Burlington. There were two spots coming up, and in order to win, I would have to not only win in a general election, but also first get through a primary election. My law practice had been open for about six years, and I had a pretty good reputation in town. I knew a number of folks connected in banking and insurance and real estate and mortgage lending. We were members of a fairly large, affluent church. We were members of the country club. Just about every box you would have for superficial success and acclaim, I was able to check off. And so why not also feed the ego a little bit more by running for public office? So I filed my paperwork for candidacy, and we ordered the lawn signs and buttons and car magnets. There's a Labor Day festival each year there known as the Carousel Festival, and we had a booth, and we gave out paper fans and signs and buttons with our logo on them. I can remember driving home from work in the evenings and seeing our entire street, every house on that street on both sides with my campaign signs in the yard. Everywhere I turned, there was my name, there was my name, there was my name. And with all this inflation of ego and with a brief eight-week campaign between filing and the primaries, I thought to myself, this is in the bag. Look at all these signs. So many people know me and love me. So many people are patting me on the back. I have it made in the shade. So I just laid back and thought that my reputation would precede me. I didn't go door to door. I didn't go to clubs to give speeches. I mean, why should I? I was a successful lawyer that drove a nice car that lived in the new trendy subdivision and spent his summers lounging by the country club pool. How could I possibly lose? Well, as it turns out, fairly convincingly. Out of a field of nine candidates, I finished fifth, well short of the fourth place finish needed to advance in the election. As it turned out, I wasn't as popular as I thought I was. You may think that you don't need this reminder that you are not the center of the universe or that you are not as popular as you think. But egocentrism is a common character trait of the human species. In our weaker moments, if we are honest, we do think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And we can't help but evaluate ourselves against the actions and behaviors and status of other people. We compare and contrast ourselves with others, oftentimes with those that we can use to inflate our own standing and make ourselves more comfortable in our own skin. But here Wesley is reminding us, you ain't all that. The only reasonable, honest, and sober conclusion you can make about yourself is this. Having stripped away all of the overestimations of ourselves all of our inflated egos. What you discover is that you are a sinner in need of God's grace, and more importantly, you are just like everybody else in this world. When we compose our spirit, we realize that we are of equal standing to everyone else in this world, and that we are all connected to each other. This second step, this composing of our spirit, is above all things a call to humility. I think we sometimes misunderstand that word. We hear the word humility and we think of someone who is quiet, someone who is reserved, someone who avoids the spotlight. Or maybe we think of someone who elevates everyone else around them and maybe considers themselves to be lower than everyone else. But being humble doesn't mean having low self-esteem or low self-worth. It doesn't mean being self-critical to the point of self-punishment. Instead, it just means judging ourselves soberly and realistically. It means that you are grounded, neither too high or too low. You understand that you are not any less important than anyone else, but nor are you more important than anyone else. You are important, but what we have to understand is that each of us is equally important to God. 
Think about what this kind of humility, this kind of serious self-estimation can mean. It means that if we truly see that we are neither more important nor less important than anyone else, and if it also means that since we are all connected in God to each other as equals, then what it also means is that we are dependent on each other. We need each other. It means that there is no longer any need for us to live according to the kinds of artificial labels and barriers that separate us based on our differences. We live in a culture that is deeply polarized, and we are tempted to align ourselves solely with people who think like us and talk like us and act like us and believe like us and worship like us. When we do that, we are already now many steps removed from the kind of sober judgment that John Wesley calls for in this step. We shouldn't set the criteria for evaluating who we are or for the kinds of people with whom we exclusively surround ourselves with. We shouldn't put ourselves in artificial boxes comparing ourselves to others using manufactured or artificial standards or placing ourselves in any kind of hierarchy. Those rankings don't matter in the eyes of God. The only thing that matters is whether or not we yield ourselves to God. John Wesley writes this, See what it is that Christ expects, and then yield yourself to His whole will. Don't think of compounding or making your own terms with Christ. That will never be allowed. We must yield ourselves to God. We must understand that both our identity and the identities of everyone else we come across in this world is as sons and daughters of God. Nothing else. And we have to live like it. This is how we compose our spirit. How do we yield ourselves to God? Well, there are two ways. The first way is in our actions. We're invited in this step to pray to God that all of our behaviors, all the things we do and all the things we think, be fully aligned with the commands and will of God. John Wesley writes, Servants, since they are, or since they must do their master's work, must do whatever their master assigns. Since they must be in favor of any work their master has for them, they must not pick and choose, thinking I'll do this and won't do that. They must not say this is too hard or this is too menial or I think I'll skip this task. Good servants, when they have chosen their master, will let their master choose their work and will not dispute the master's will, but do it. Let's admit, doing what God asks us to do is hard. We might even say it is sometimes scary to surrender control of our actions and our future to God, especially when God is calling us to areas that are uncomfortable or especially when God is maybe asking us to stop doing things that we like. It's not our preferred way of operating, and if we were honest, we would maybe say, Hey, Pastor Mark, but we have free will. I'd rather be able to exercise it instead of letting it go. Instead of doing and living how God wants us to, we would rather do what we want, when we want, where and how we want to do it. But here's what you got to understand. You're not being asked to give up your free will. You're being asked to use your free will to choose Christ. The question before you and before us all in composing our spirits is whether we will choose the crown or the curse. Would you rather take the gains and pleasures of sin, doing whatever you want, and take a chance on the curse? Or will you yield yourself as a servant of Christ and make sure that you get the crown? Despite our most human leanings to focus our free will toward our own interests and to behave in a way that serves our own agendas, our own wants, our own desires, we are called to yield each of our actions over to God, aligning our behaviors according to God's commandments 
and purposes. The second way we yield to God is in our stations in life. This means that when we yield to God, we surrender not only our actions, but also our associations. We surrender not only our activities and the context in which we perform them, but also the kinds of people with whom we associate. Who do you surround yourself with? What are your goals for living your life? Where would we all prefer to be if we were honest? Places of high honor and esteem, right? We want to be considered with high regard by our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends. And so what happens? Well, we convince ourselves that if we can just make a little more money or have a bigger house or drive a nicer car, then we'll be okay. Then we'll have made it. Or if I can be more popular at school, I can overcome feeling bad about myself. If my kids turn out right, then my life will have meaning. If I can be famous, then my life will be worth it. If I can get the grades and raise my GPA and get the degrees, then I can be proud of myself. If I can create something that lasts, then my legacy will be intact. Or if I associate myself with the right people or live in the right neighborhood or belong to the right clubs and organizations or meet the right people to advance my social status or my job, then my life will be complete. The next thing you know, when you are chasing these things, we slide down that slippery slope of trying to convince ourselves that we are better than we actually are. We forget our true identities. And then we start excusing behaviors and attitudes all in the name of getting ahead or living our best life or being successful. How do we prevent that from happening? We pray. We pray these words that we find as part of John Wesley's covenant prayer. We trust in God, we yield to God, and we ask Him. We say, Lord, place me where you wish. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or trampled underfoot for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily resign all to your pleasure and disposal. Friends, we put our lives in God's hands. Is this difficult? Very. Is this scary? Oh, you bet. Is it necessary to yield our actions and associations over to God? Absolutely. That is the only way to continue on this adventure and make our faithful promises to God. We confide in God, we compose our spirit, and next week we claim the covenant. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. God bless.